I'm not the one who got you fired. I know that. I know that. I, I don't. I never. I never blamed you. It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. It is Carcon Carne, the world's only food podcast recorded in a car. Today it's recorded in a rental car, and my guest is the inimitable, it, really, a legend in Chicago radio, Johnny Mars. Hi, JVO, or do you prefer James? I never call you JVO. You never call me JVO. Does anybody call you that? A, a lot of people. Okay. My close friends call me James. James. Yeah. Right. And I realize if we're at a place called Amitable. Amitable? Mm-hmm. Amitable, I always thought it was Amitable, but it's it's Amitable. Uh, it means um, rising, I think, or raising. It's Korean, awakening. Sorry, awakening. That's what it means. It's Korean vegetarian, which would make this episode of Carcon Carne, Carcon Carne sin carne, because we are without carne. <laughs> Sans carne? Sans carne, whatever kind of Spanglish way you want to use to describe it. Uh, but you are healthy, and you're trying to make me a better man. <laughs> As I remember when I first met you, you were a vegetarian, correct? I was. <laughs> What happened? I, I completely fell off. I, I, I you know, I, I stopped eating meat a long time ago because I, I thought it was messing up my body. Like, and it probably was, but it, I didn't feel good after I. I always felt kind of sick to my stomach. I thought, what if I just stop? And I did, and I did for a very long time. And then I just, I, I started doing a lot of business travel, and I'll never forget. I was at a client dinner, and the client, this was in Toronto, the client wanted to go to Ruth's Chris. So I'm sitting there at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in Toronto, never been before. I started hearing the sizzle of the steak come from across the room because they really intensely heat those steaks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they serve them on the on whatever they use to, to grill them up. And I just said, okay, I'll try a filet today. It's been a while. I'll give it a whirl. And then, you know, the next day I'm having like a gyro. Then <laughs> the, the beef and sausage combo with jardinera on it two days after that. And I, I never looked back. And I didn't really feel any physical effects like negative i wasn't hurling i wasn't locked up in the bathroom and just the 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 meat eating just kind of took well i was the exact opposite i was a carnivore and a huge meat eater and a huge eater in general well i remember when i i I hate when people say this to me johnny but i remember listening to you when i was much younger and you were you looked less healthy than you do now (laughs) I was way less healthy, and I was on the verge of dying. Scafish, uh, Bobby Scafish used to call me the round mound of sound. <laughs> and uh, that kind of stuck when I was uh, new to XRT, and I was uh, pretty overweight, grossly overweight for a long period of time. And, um, you know, things happened, and uh, I think uh, the impetus for me was my father passed away, and he was 66, and I looked at his life, and then I compared it with mine, and he wasn't overweight. He wasn't a two-and-a-half-pack-a-day smoker. He wasn't doing half the things that I did, and I was sort of heading in that direction. So it took me a little while, about a year and a half, to kind of right the ship, to kind of, like, hit the uh, rudder and then sort of move in that direction. And but, when was that, like mid-'80s? Uh, about 87. My dad died in 86, so in 87, 88, I started trying to eat healthier and work out and change a lot of things. And you'd be surprised when you're that big. I was like roughly 300 pounds. 
The I, weight I can't comes even imagine off. looking at you now. Oh, I have photos. Oh, what do you think of when you see those photos? Uh, you know, I'm not that guy. And that was kind of a scary guy and kind of a pretty frightened guy. So that's what I used as sort of protection, as a lot of people, fat, fat people do, from what I've been told. And I know that was the case with me. Uh, but, you know, I'm not that guy, and it took a while. And it just sort of like, you know, like you falling back into meat, it was sort of me falling in that direction and getting more intense with it. Um, to the point where I met a woman who taught me about eating raw food and um, I was in conjunction with working out. I, I was down to the point where people were saying, eh, you know, you're looking a little too skinny. But I, you know, I balanced it off. And now I became vegan. I was vegan for a long, long time. I still like to eat that way. But um, I ended up getting married like about 10 years ago. And my wife eats meat and, uh, and dairy and things like that. So... That stuff was in the house. I ended up uh, becoming more or less um, vegan slash vegetarian. So I do let some dairy back in my diet. It's generally in the form of sweets. <laughs> so like ice cream? Not so much ice cream, but cakes and pies mm-hmm. and things like that. And then the other uh, aspect is um, my heritage is Greek. So I let uh, Greek yogurt and feta cheese back in my life. That's probably the only cheese I I do love feta cheese. Feta cheese is the best. A a Greek salad. Oh, my God. They're awesome. Sanders, that's a place that we could... uh, Over on, like, Devon? It's on uh, Tui and... That's in Nile Center. You were a Jax guy. I was a... Well, okay, Jax in high school on Tui Avenue. Jax was 24 hours. Right. And that was the place we went after a night of hard partying, misbehaving... Right. Hope the parents never find out. And it was a stuff. smoking place until totally was. Skokie banned smoking. <laughs> For sure. But that was one of those great places, one of those diners where you can get like a Monte Cristo or an omelet or perch. Like it, <laughs> everything's on the menu. It's like a trifold menu. And I had breakfast there a couple of times when we moved into the neighborhood or fairly close. And, and, and I thought the breakfast was good, but I always like... Uh, the uh, the the skillets at uh, at Sanders. I don't know if you've had those. I have not. Where they pile like they they layer hash browns and then you could do um, egg whites. That's another thing that I do eat mm-hmm. is egg whites and then like broccoli and uh, uh, onions and some other vegetables, green peppers on top of that. I love that. All right, so we're at this place, Amidable, 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 Bawataba, wherever we are here. <laughs> And I just, I just followed your lead on this. Okay. So you're, you're going to make me a better person. All right, let's go for it. I have a bag of stuff. You recommended the pancakes, which are not the pancakes I'm used to. No, they're not uh, pancakes where you use honey and uh, butter and maple syrup or whatever. They're. Um, this is how they keep you skinny. You can't open the you goddamn bag. can't open bag. the package. Yeah. <laughs> Here. I, I, I surrender to you. Well, I would just do this. Tear it open. When in, when in doubt, rip, Man it, it, up. rip it apart. There so there's the no, kimchi. So we got maki. Maki, kimchi maki. Oh, there are a lot of these. Yes. Now, these look great. The, uh, the maki is I'm cucumber. You, wait till you try the pancakes. Oh, those actually look amazing. Uh, the maki is cucumber, spinach, and... Avocado. Avocado, right. And the pancakes... Okay, so are we going to try the... Are we going to get all Did this? they really not give us any napkins? Uh, <laughs> and I'm in a rental car, so I have nothing. <laughs> they didn't. All right, well, that's we'll what, have to just be careful. That's what the pants are for. All right. And I got myself an apple ginger juice. All right, these are still hot, but here, take a bite. Okay. Wait, what's in this? Um, it's black pearl pancakes. So there's vegetables. 
This is really good. I know. This is super flavorful. Wow. Dip it into the... This is a kimchi. Mm. I got nothing left to dip. Okay. Here we go. I'm going to reach over here. Go ahead. And try not to spill on your finger. Oh, right on. Johnny, this is really good. I know. These pancakes are awesome. And I'm having apple ginger juice. Is that good? Yeah, I love the taste of ginger. Yes. Not when it's not too tart. Or... Mm-hmm. Actually, it's more gingery mm-hmm. than apple. This is quite good. Mm. Johnny, I really like this. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with myself right now. <laughs> You can always go back to meat. There's no, there's, there's vegans that come in there. I mean, there's people that come in there that eat meat. I'm gonna try I'm a maki. Try the maki. It's gonna take it without dipping it, without the uh, ginger, without anything else. Wasabi. It's gonna be a little bland. Huh. So am I. Mm. Good. Very straightforward. Mm-hmm. So thinking back to those XRT days, those early days. Yeah. Was it? Just, was, you know, back in the day, like, the loop was nuts. Yeah. Like, I, I picture, you know, nudity and mountains of cocaine back in the loop circa 1980. <laughs> what was it like at XRT back then? Um, wasn't quite the same. Um, but it was a lot of fun. That was back when the record industry was nuts. So you had things going on pretty much every night and record company guys. I picture a lot of place. marijuana, a lot of pot smoking going on. There was a lot of pot smoking. There was a lot of cocaine as well, and there was a lot of booze. So it was the, you know, rock and roll uh, substances were all over the place. I remember there were different bars that you could go to on Lincoln Avenue where the record company guys hung out. Um, there was also a lot of going, a lot of things going on at Tuts. Tuts. And where was, was Tuts? For Tuts is where, um, it was on Belmont and Sheffield above uh, what's now, I think, a bank. And now I think Tuts is a, a hair salon. Perfect. But it was, uh, what was the name of the place before that? I'm spacing on the name. Um, but it was a legendary club, and then it became Tuts, and that was where a lot of the you know, um, late 70s, early 80s British bands came to play. I remember seeing the Psychedelic Furs there. Wow. Uh, the Cramps played there when they're not. British. I love the Cramps. Oh, they're awesome. They were the best live. A lot of fun. Um, what else did I see? There? I love the first Echo two. and the Bunny Men. I mean, second all, Richard Butler's voice still sounds good on stage. He does. He does. And then there's that uh, Chicago connection with Mars. Uh, Mars Williams. I met Mars Williams when he was in the. Um, I know what boys like the waitresses. Mm-hmm. He was a sax player in the waitresses. That's awesome. When I met him at Touch. So Touch was a scene. Um, and then in 83, um, Smart Bar opened up. And it was actually upstairs on the top level of that building at 3730 North Clark. And Which then is it, now like the Top Note Theater. Right, right. And I think maybe um, Joe Shanahan's offices. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I haven't been up there in a while. But it was originally up there. Then they moved it to the basement. And the basement was a, um, was a reggae bar. For a while, reggae bars were a thing on Clark Street. They were for a while. There was Exodus, Wild Hair, right, and Cool Runnings. Mm-hmm. That was the bar where the Smart Bar is now. So those were like the the hangouts. It was originally Tuts, and then when Tuts kind of went under, then it was the Smart Bar. I wasn't a big nine fifty guy or um, Neo. I always 
before I, I could legally drink, I was always intrigued by 950 only because Iggy Pop name dropped it. Right. The Lucky Number Club. Right. Right. So I, I want to go there. If Iggy Pop knows about it, it must be cool. Right. But, I mean, there was, there were, I dropped in there from time to time, but it wasn't, I don't know why. I guess it's just you gravitate towards where people that you know are. Sure, and of course. I knew more people at Smart Bar than I did at 950. 950 was a lot of the people from uh, um, Wax Tracks mm-hmm. that hung out there. So, let's see. What else happened? Uh, it was just a crazy time. There was so much new music coming out. Um, I I was uh, close with Bobby Scayfish, and we were the guys that were playing all the new music at the time. Right. And then Bobby left and went to the loop, and then I kind of took over that mantle and got to host the big beat, which he started. And I did that which for Which still is a very years. strong association with you. Yes, because I think I will probably go down as the guy that's run it the longest. Mm-hmm. Um, when I left, XRT Marty took over, and he had it for quite a few years, and then it was expanded to two hours. And then... Marty Leonard's, by the way, one of my favorite jocks in the market. Yeah, he's a good guy. Really fun guy. We've known each other for a long, long time. He was originally an intern for... Um, for Terry Hemmert and was her morning show producer is how I met him and he was a student at Columbia College and then he kind of stayed along at the radio station and was uh, doing stuff behind the scenes he came up with the regular guy which was mm-hmm. a really and still is a very funny uh, way of looking at movies from mm-hmm. a Chicago guy's perspective and um, eventually worked himself into doing all the interviews um, hosting the big beat and now when Frankie Lee retired he's been full time right so yeah, he's a really good guy, really good friend. Um, and what else happened? Um, just, you know, things went along. The music was great. The radio station was fun to work at. We played um, a wide assortment of things from all genres. And then in uh, 1996, we were sold to CBS. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> That whole period of consolidation and, yeah. and change, arguably not a good thing for the industry. No. No, and I kind of uh, looked back on it, and it was, uh, you know, Bill Clinton that I had a hand in it. I don't know how much of it was forced from the lobbyists or whatnot, but Mm -hmm. it's something that really shouldn't happen because it's really made media, you know, what it is today, which is controlled by a handful of people, and that's never a good thing because there's never any diversity. You know, the most diversity you get now is from the listener-sponsored or listener-supported radio stations, you know, the public radio stations, and they're few and far between. What made you want to go into radio? Was it something you grew up, like, at the age of 10 you knew, or was it something you happened into? It was something I kind of happened into Um, as I eat more of this kimchi. I'm going to steal more of this pancake. I'm just going to take a huge chunk of this pancake so I don't have to keep, like, reaching over you. Take it. And there's two different sauces. If you want to try this one, this is that's a, the hot one. They've got that for the uh, yeah for the maki. It's pretty intense. That's a, a homemade kimchi. Kimchi is uh, I think fermented uh, cabbage, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's homemade. It's also my stripper name. <laughs> that is a great stripper mm-hmm. name, man. Now you're talking. <laughs> I pay her a few bucks. Um, I. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do after high school. I went to Lane Tech, and I kind of wandered over to Northeastern Illinois University where I thought I was going to be a teacher. I thought that was going to be the plan. That's so funny. 
I, there was a period of time when I was in college where I thought that's what I wanted to do too. It was radio or education. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't have an idea about radio until I wandered into the radio station at uh, Northeastern, which is still there, WZRD, right? Broadcasting at eighty eight point three over ten lovely watts, I think. Uh-huh. And while I never got on the air there, I met some really interesting, wild people. I bet. I mean. This was 1975, 76, and the uh, management of the radio station were still like sort of hippies, kind mm-hmm. of getting together for staff staff meetings and dropping acid, and I was this innocent kid who was like, <laughs> what the heck is going on uh-huh. here? I never got on the air, but I got to play around in the production studio and cue records and use the mic, and I was fascinated by it, and after I quit... <laughs> After a semester, because I was kind of working at a grocery store and trying to do um, college the way I did uh, high school. I went to Lane Tech, mm-hmm. but I was able to work my way through without putting a whole lot of effort in. In well college, done. that doesn't doesn't work too well. Well, that's kind of the Columbia College model. Exactly, <laughs> which is how I ended up at Columbia College. <laughs> I graduated Columbia without taking a math class. Yes, Columbia had very limited requirements for, uh-huh. you know, core elements of, of, of education. Um, but it's still a great school. And I, what, how I ended up there, I was, I was uh, out of school. I dropped out of Northeastern. I still had this idea I wanted to get in radio. And the summer of 76, I saw an ad in the reader for Columbia College. And they were te- having a summer course in radio broadcasting, and it was um, taught by, I found out, Al Parker, mm-hmm. who is the father of Neil Parker. And uh, he was the news director at XRT. Love the Parker family. Yes, they're wonderful. Um, And so I went to the class. It was a five-week session, and Columbia College was located at the time at Lakeshore in Ohio in a dilapidated building. And after the five-week class, Al suggested I come back for the full term in the fall. So I went back to college, and I went to Columbia College. And it was there in my first uh, semester I met Frankie Lee. And we became close. So you were friends. both students at the same time. Yes, but I he had that. two years at another school. He had a he had two years at a, um, a, a, a what was the name of the school? Somewhere on the south side. It was mm-hmm. a Christian school, and I think he got kicked out for smoking pot. That's amazing. So when I met Frank, he had like the longest, wildest hair. He had this long army trench coat. He looked really sinister. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he was he and I became fast friends. We ended up um, hearing about in the first semester we were there, we ended up hearing about an internship at the Loop and at the time the Loop was owned by the Chess family and it had transitioned it was going to transition from WSDM which at the time was um, the call letter st- stood for um, wisdom. <laughs> Got which, it. Of which there was none. <laughs> at one point it was uh um, smack dab in the middle, SDM. And they were actually an innovative station. They were the first station to have all-female disc jockeys back in the, I think, the early 70s. So they were... Trans- that, that, that's a historical footnote that I think has been lost in time. I know, completely. Completely. There's a number of women, I can't think of any of them off the top of my head, who were still in Chicago, may not be on the radio, but who were part of that radio station. And playing rock music. And in 2016, it seems unthinkable that there would be a station And there's the great and wonderful man, Burt Burdine, who is um, a local programming legend, 
who is still around, and I've had I've had breakfast with him at Sanders. Actually, he's a Skokie <laughs> Skokie resident. Um, really good guy. He was teaching at Columbia College, and so Frank and I signed up to take his class. And after we signed up, we found out that Terry Hemmert was going to be teaching there for the first time, and we couldn't get out of Bert's class because Bert was a friend and right. and, and a colleague, and he knew who we were. Um, so we interned together at, at the Loop um, as a transition from SDM to the Loop, and we stayed there for two years. And in the two years I was there, I finished two years at Columbia College. Frank graduated, and the people that were running the Loop had a station in El Paso called The Pass. And they sent Frank down there to work, and they kept me on 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 staff at uh, the Loop. Uh, I don't I, think I knew any of this. You didn't? I, not that you spent any time at the Loop. I spent. Um, two and a half years as an intern. But one of the oddest things, when they sent Frank to Texas, they put me on the air part-time, having had no experience at all. So, so what year was this? This was uh, the summer of 78. So the loop was brand new. It was right. less than two years old. Right. And it was actually kicking ass. It was, um, it was independently owned, and they were going up against uh, the Bob Pittman-programmed uh, KQX, mm-hmm. which... Uh, had Harvey Wells and and Mitch Michaels as right. jocks, and uh, one of the things that they did completely wrong, they came on like gangbusters and and were commercial free for like a month, which was a big thing back then oh, to yeah. not play commercials. But they were automated, so back then they had the disc jockeys recording their vocal parts, and then they had the music on carts, kind of this big carousel of carts that would kind of throw it in as it was supposed to play. Unfortunately. <laughs> they had these aging engineers who were union guys uh-huh. who had to run things. So the jocks would intro the Doobie Brothers and Fleetwood Mac would play. That's fantastic. And that would happen all the time. <laughs> That's fantastic. So they finally ended up hiring or, or having interns sit in there and watch and make sure that the right song got played. But Q101, there was Q101 or uh, KQX on one end. And then on the other end was WDAI, mm-hmm. which was a rock station. Right. And the Loop came in and beat them both in the ratings. Were you Johnny Mars when you started at the Loop, or did you go by a different name? No, I think I just used a first name. And um, when I came to XRT, Norm asked me that question, and he said, oh, did your parents always want a dog? Because <laughs> you never <laughs> used the last name. Sounds like Norm Weiner. Yeah. No, Johnny Mars was uh, something I came up with on the plane ride back to Texas after being interviewed at XRT. Actually, I came up with John Mars, and then Norm came up with, what about Johnny? I go, I could live with that. And then later... Because Johnny's the guy you want to hang out with. Right. And then later I found out, and I you know, I didn't learn this in high school French, I don't know why, but Johnny Mar means I don't care, which is kind of a perfect rock and roll. That is thing. fantastic. Johnny Mar. <laughs> Say it again. Johnny Mar. We're having... Uh, Korean and French and this is it's like the United Nations coming alive in this (laughs) rental car yep in a Japanese rental car eating Korean food (laughs) that's right so it was the weirdest thing I was at a Mariano's in Glenview yeah I was there with my kids and we just finished shopping and I got them all situated in the car and I popped the trunk and I was loading all the groceries in suddenly I hear a boom and the car rocks back toward me a car trying to park just went too fast and too hard and slammed into my car trying wow. trying to park um it was really weird and nobody I, got hurt your kids were okay no that was the first thing i checked i you know wow. flung the doors open are you okay can you move move your neck 
all good. Um, but it took like a month and a half to resolve, which is why you have a rental. Which is why I have a rental car. Badly damaged on the front of your car? No, the bumper was messed up and it yeah. kind of knocked out of line. I, I suspect it'll be an easy fix. Yeah, but, but yours is in the shop. Uh-huh. The, the Mazda 3, which is also home to the magnet I put on the car to let people know that this is Carcone Carney recording in here. I've got a ma- I've got a car magnet. That's good. Oh, yeah. Promotion. All right, so you were Johnny Mars. Right. You interviewed at I... XRT. Mm-hmm. Norm said you don't want to be a dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I came back to work at XRT. Interestingly enough, I was in Texas and uh, for a year and a half, and the situation there had sort of deteriorated. Frank and I had been sent down there. He went in the summer, and I went in the fall of 78. And uh, I immediately had the most miserable life a person can have. <laughs> I, I worked from midnight to 6. Overnights are the worst. And I was the music director. So at the time, there was no internet. There was mm-hmm. no, uh, you know, uh, the filing system was a little box of index cards mm-hmm. with every song on them. And then... That's old school. Yes. And then you would have to... Um, manipulate the cards put them back in in an order we, every day you came in there was a stack of cards with rubber bands on them from different people's shows from different shifts so you would have to file them back in the index card box and then hand out more songs for them to play in their next shifts so that was something i looked forward to whenever i i finished the air air shift so i would get off the air at six i'd get a breakfast um grand slam breakfast at the denny's yeah you would and then come back and work uh, till three in the afternoon. Oh my God, that sounds awful. And then and then go and and basically pass out at home. Wake up at ten thirty. I lived a couple blocks from the station. Take a shower and then come in and do it again. From I get in about eleven, have to do production and then work midnight to six and stay there till three. I did this for about three months and I was about ready to quit because I was. You know what I was making? A big hundred and ten dollars a week. <laughs> and that's radio, kids. If you well, want to do radio, back then, isn't that the equivalent of like five hundred thousand dollars oh, a year yeah. in my, oh, yeah. <laughs> modern yeah. currency? It really went far in Juarez, though. I got to tell you, <laughs> hundred ten dollars a week gets you a lot in Juarez. But um, <laughs> they mercifully changed my shift to ten to three, so it made it a little bit better. God, overnights, I found working over, and some people can do it. Some people have that third shifter. It's a young comes, person's game. Is that what it is? Yeah. I, I, I don't think I've ever been more depressed. And just just off my game is when I did overnights. Yeah, I I don't think I could ever do overnights now. I don't think that it w- if it was offered to me. I have a I have a hard time. I hate to say this because <laughs> I have a hard time doing eight to midnight. <laughs> <laughs> Once you cross the ten p.m. threshold, it's like really. Oh, am I, man, am I in know, college like here? What's those guys? <laughs> I, I've gotten used to a lifestyle where I get up at like five thirty in the morning. Mm-hmm. So when you know anything. Anything that doesn't get me to bed by 9, 30, 10 o'clock, <laughs> and I'm up till like, you know, you get done at 12, so you don't get home till 12, 30, quarter till, and then you're kind of still wired, you know, next thing you know, it's like 1, 15, 1, 30 before you uh-huh. fall asleep. Okay, when I did nights at Key 101, I would get home at like 12, 30 or 1 a.m., and I, I was wide awake. I mean, forget it. I was just, yeah. you know, answering phone calls all night, just yeah. busy doing a show. I would spend two hours or so playing Zelda on the Nintendo. <laughs> That's good. And I, I remember one morning trying to go to sleep and my head was kind of like swirling in circles and it was like everything I'd just seen on the screen, like that three-dimensional mm-hmm. walkthrough of a mm-hmm. boss level, my head was just kind of disoriented from sitting in front of the video screen for that long after being up all day and then all night doing an airship. But you know what I think is still is, I mean, that's pretty bad. Overnights is bad. Two to six, 
that's that's kind of was the standard overnight mm-hmm. shift. Ten to two is a really bad shift. It is. Ten at night till two in the morning because you're done at two in the morning, and the only thing that can happen is trouble because you're going to go to a four o'clock bar. Right. You know, you're not going to just go home or get a hooker. <laughs> yeah, drive down to Belmont and get a hooker. <laughs> but it 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 it. It made my life really miserable because I would go to, you know, I was self-imposed. It wasn't anybody putting a gun to my head. I'd go out to the 4 o'clock bars and then inevitably go to somebody's house. And then it's like 8 or 9 in the morning that you're coming home. And you're like, oh, what did I just do? And then you're trying to sleep. <laughs> Forget and, it. Yeah. It's, that, that, was, that was not a lot of fun, that shift. So, um, so I came back to XRT uh, after an arduous interview process that took about six months because I was dealing with Norm Weiner. And, um, you know, he kept putting me off. I started applying for the job in the fall of 79. Yeah, late fall of 79. Here's the thing. You're talking about 1979. I'm looking at you now. There's something to be said for eating healthy. You don't look... Like someone look. who was pitching a radio gig in 1979. <laughs> well, that's nice. Yeah, that does help. Eating healthy, working out, that does help. Although I know that the damage that I've done to my body uh, isn't uh, doesn't get replaced or repaired. You know, my doctor told me, you know, those years that you smoke three packs of cigarettes a day, you know, the, your lungs are still a little messed up from that. You know, they're never going to kind of regenerate. Right. <laughs> We're not living in that world yet. So... Yeah, no, I I, uh, I appreciate that. It's fun. I um, you know that's one of the things that keeps me doing it and keeps me um, active in it is that it uh, it doesn't. Uh, I'm I just turned fifty nine. So Damn, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be sixty next year. That's I I remember how freaked out I was over forty. So do you get the senior discount at Sanders? I haven't asked yet, but I should. You totally I know there should. isn't one here, but not at admittable. This is the fountain of youth here. <laughs> it is the yeah. They've got weird like. Tibetan monk music, or yes, they do. They have bells and you know sherpas waiting to uh-huh. take you to your car. So, all right, and then XRT, you got the gig, right? And I started there, and um, it was uh, intimidating. I have to say, I was there. For, I was uh, hired to do eleven to two uh, a.m., and that expanded to ten to two. And unfortunately, and, you know, a lot of stuff happened my first year. I was on the air when John Lennon was assassinated and had to deal with that. And um, that was the first bit of uh, press I got. Yeah, it was uh, it was a weird night. I remember I was dating somebody and her grandmother had died. And I remember being kind of in mourning over that. And then I wander into the radio station and Scafish rips something off the wire, which is what we did. That's a the thing that actually happened back then. Yeah. And um, he shows me the wire copy from the AP that says John Lennon's been shot in New York City. And then a few minutes later, bells go off and dance the note that John Lennon's been assassinated. And he's done. He's off the air at like 10. And I'm so like, here you go, air. Johnny. Yeah, here you go. And, uh, you know, I just uh, opened the phone lines and took calls from people. Not on the air, but, you know, mm-hmm. we never did that at XRT. But uh, um, just talking to people and just everybody was in shock and crying and just... Um, you know, an unbelievable event. And I played uh, respectful music around that, you know, mm-hmm. whatever was uh, I felt would work. And, um, you know, I did what I, you know, I thought I was uh, I was crying and <laughs> mourning with people. But I guess that was the connection, you know, back then. That was what people were looking for was uh, that was the radio at its core was uniting people, you know. I want to fast forward a bit. I, I, it's worth mentioning. I'm not the one who got you fired. I know that. I know that. 
I don't. I never. I never blamed you, and I. Uh, I. I. I found it funny how it all worked out. You should talk. <laughs> tell that part. You got hired at XRT when? And it was in two thousand one. It was. 2000? It was yeah, end of two thousand two thousand one. Right, and. I know that one of the things that happens with corporations is they like to cut costs. So mm -hmm. I think the way I remember it or the, the way I was told it, um, never anything formally, just all hearsay, is they really didn't want a music director that was off the air. Which is the, definitely where things were heading yeah. at that time. Yeah. And that's what was going on at XRT forever. All the music directors were never uh, on the air. Or if they were on the air, it was just part-time fill-in in an emergency situation. Was But Lynn was on the air, wasn't he? Part-time fill-in yeah, initially, okay. and then it was only in an emergency situation. But um, you were hired eventually to kind of be the music director and then be on the air. And then it was a choice that Harvey made according, you know, and I still don't know the full story. Mm. It could have been Harvey. It could have been Norm. Norm's always played it close to the vest. But he did apologize to me. He did sit me down, and he said that was the dumbest movie ever made after I came back to work part-time. But when I, um, you know, when I was uh, forced out, uh, it was kind of all Harvey's doing. I think he, he was more a fan of Bobby's than he was of mine. And I, a few times, had gotten into Harvey's face with, with a few things. Well, and that's interesting because I think a lot of you guys and gals uh, came up, there was always this image of the XRT team as a family. So mm -hmm. there was probably, or there were probably less boundaries in that building than there would be at other, let's say, corporate offices. Correct. You probably felt a little more emboldened to challenge Harvey than, say, someone would at Bank of America to his manager. Correct. And the funny thing was that up until that point, you know, we had been owned by Danny Lee, who was always in the corner office. And if you needed something from him, you would go and ask him. Or if you, um, you know, wanted to do a promotion, Norm or the programming department would go in and ask him. And uh, then it became a situation where we didn't know who was in charge. It was a faceless guy from New York mm -hmm. who would come in so often. And, uh, you know, and then we became uh, under the thumb of Mel Carmazan, who mm -hmm. was... Uh, notorious for you know his his model for the salespeople is you do the best that you can and then you succeed you have the greatest success in the station's history and then next year you got to make 20 percent more right so good luck with that yeah good luck with that and um oh if you can't do that then you got to cut costs uh -huh. and so you you kind of turn into a situation where we can get rid of that nighttime guy who's been here and is making a um a high salary because he's given a service for 21 years mm -hmm. um, and people seem to like him and uh, you know put somebody in that's going to do two jobs and we don't have to pay him as much or whatever you know it was and I don't know you know if that's how it were, played out but that's kind of the thought process it, it was an interesting time um, how long did you last there what were you there, you there <laughs> Johnny I mean I mean, uh, don't mean it that way you know uh, it was nine months I'll never forget they cut you loose then they had a staff meeting, and I was invited not to attend. <laughs> Norm said, well, you know, we, we are like family, and we just need to kind of come together, you know, understand what's going on. Here it is. They cut you loose. I'm coming in. Rather than, you know, say, okay, here's what's going on. We're all together now. Here's the new plan. I, I was on the out, outside the entire wow. time. It I was, didn't know that, that part of it. Oh, it, the entire time I was there, I felt like I was crashing a party. Mm. And it's funny, you know, I got the job at XRT. I'm thinking, wow, this is great. People at XRT are there for decades. 
I'll, I'll grow old at this place. <laughs> Didn't work out that way. Yeah. And oh my God, you know, replacing Johnny Mars in in time slot only. Um, I can't even tell you how vilified I was. It was I, it was the most demoralizing, debilitating. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't I didn't know that aspect of it at all. Oh, you did a little bit. I knew that you were put in an awkward position. I didn't know that it was the, the audience would come in and like, you know, knife you. It was, <laughs> it was brutal. Well, you know, I was the guy who was playing Cypress Hill two months prior, and yeah. Uh, yeah. Well. You know, that's that's it it ended up that we both ended up in a different place and then you actually encouraged me to apply for the zone job after mm-hmm. you left XRT and went to uh, you know, ninety four seven with uh, Bill Gamble and all the old uh, a lot of the old crew a from lot of them. Q one oh one. And uh, you know, for that I'm definitely uh, grateful that you asked me to join there because it actually what what it did was it was a union shop i never worked at a union shop before so i was able to get health insurance after a year of employment and i was there part-time for three years and you know i knew kind of it wasn't gonna end up being anything we were all clear on that yeah so i'll never forget after i left xrt um I, I did something kind of goofy on my way out. And I, I'm never one to burn bridges. I guess I kind of burned one here. <laughs> um, the program director uh, at the time at XRT uh, had an aversion to white cheese. Or just cheese in general, I guess. Mm-hmm. He Except kept, on pizza. I think he likes cheese on pizza. Irony noted. Well, I hope he doesn't hear this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Well, this is public I, information. Yeah, I mean, is, right. Like, yeah. So he kept a lot of his stuff in my office because his office was a little cluttered. And... Uh, in my office was like a dorm fridge where he'd keep all of his soda. I left a block of cheese on top of his soda before I left. Was... It was kind of a goofy little prank. It took on a life of its own. It was the most ridiculous thing. In hindsight, I pr- the me of today wouldn't have done that. The me back then was kind of frustrated. Hey, and... You know, I mean, I remember your life a little bit back then. I heard stories that you would be getting into the office at uh, 8 in the morning as the music director, and then he wouldn't show up till noon or 1, and then have to deal with all the calls that were waiting for him. And you were sitting there waiting for a music meeting to happen. It didn't happen till like 3 or 4, and you were... You're, I think you had one new baby at the time, or were Correct. waiting... Oh, no, I... I uh, I was at that point I had a baby months away. It was imminent, right? And you were going home to have dinner with your wife, and then having to come back and be on the air. Uh-huh. It was, it was so great. you were there from eight in the morning till like it sounded like my El Paso job. <laughs> it was a, a little bit, you know. It wasn't nearly as grueling, but you know, I did this thing, and then suddenly Chicago Magazine does this. Oh yeah, like anniversary retrospective on XRT. It's like. At that point, it was the 30th anniversary, maybe, of XRT, 25th. I don't know what it was. Um, and the lead of the story is the cheese thing. I know. It did take all on this life history, of <laughs> All this history, all these legendary jocks, you and Terry <laughs> and Lynn and Frank and Bobby, all that stuff got pushed down because of this goofy story from this guy who, statistically speaking, never even worked there. In the history of XRT, I was there for nine months. Yeah. It's like I was never even there. A blip, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it was just weird. And... Uh, Disappointing, all the way around for you, for me. Yeah, um, but you know, I saw where they were and what they were. You know, I mean, they had uh, they had done all kinds of things that I really can't get into talking about. You know, legal stuff mm-hmm. um, towards me that was just ugly. And you know, when I when they were trying to pass off the last thing um, to me as as kind of a good thing to keep me there in a in a in a small effort to keep me there 
they just kind of said, you know, it's obvious you guys don't want me here and I don't really want to be someplace where you're going to treat me like this, so let's part ways. Mm-hmm. And, and then I still had to fight him over that, too, um, um, some legal stuff. But, you know, it uh, it turned out for the for the best. Um, you know, I, um, I left there, I was gone for six years and did the, the zone for three years, then got into real estate and then got to um, 9FM, which was fun for two years and uh, it was the right idea that just yeah that was it was wrongly it was it was executed poorly and it could have if it had a stronger signal i think it would have been um the predecessor to me tvfm Mm -hmm. it was definitely more rock based which was cool and a lot of fun i mean it was just all over the map with music which more more diverse than xrt i mean to actually be playing rap songs you Mm -hmm. know which was new for you yeah, yeah, it was fun. Um, so that lasted two years, and then uh, ended up in the uh, in January or March of two thousand seven. Yes, uh, XRT came calling to to work part time fill in, and um, and at that point, at that point, had enough time elapsed where you're like, okay, I can think about this. I, you know, my knee jerk reaction was no. There's no way I want to go back after you know the treatment I received, but, uh, you know, in talking to a few friends and talking to a few radio colleagues, uh, they all suggested it would be a good way to keep my name, you know, out there and you never know something could happen and you could end up being full time again. So I went back there and, you know, it was, uh, the audience that kind of responded in such a generous and loving way that just completely blew me away. It was, <laughs> It was it was very moving and emotional to have people call you up for like six seven months at a time, and they're so happy that you're back and so happy to hear you and they you know glad things worked out and you know and and that still kind of is remarkable to me that a radio station could have that kind of mm-hmm. impact or that any individual with what they were allowed to do can have that kind of impact. So that's, that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I'm sure those people are like me. They grew up with you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's something to that. Yes, there's absolutely. something to you know, going back to the big beat, I mean, you're the guy who introduced people to their favorite bands. This is true. This is true. I mean, we, the, the relationships we all have with music are so profound that when someone is the one who hooks it up... That's true. And I think of the people that I remember hearing when I was growing up, you know, that influenced me. And I was a big fan of XRT, too, so it was like a dream come true. I mean, I was a Northwest Side kid, and I remember after high school... And when I first started going, when I went to that summer class at Columbia College, I was telling people in my neighborhood that eventually I'm going to work at XRT. I'm going to I'm going to get a job there. You watch. I'm going to get a job there. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Well, sure. were you told by teachers, you know, if you want to work in radio, forget it. You got to move. You're never going to make it here. Um, not so much. Um, it was never as clear cut as it as it's become. Um, but the odd thing was I thought when I got on the air at the loop part time that I was going to be able to stay at the loop part time and then finish my schooling and then look for a job Mm -hmm. but what happened in the fall of that year somebody left the station in El Paso and they needed a body down there because the people that were running the loop were also consulting the station in El Paso and it was like you're it if you don't go you can't stay here so it would have been you know it was dropped in my lap do I want to take this opportunity and get into radio full-time and see what it turns out to be or do I want to say no to this and go to school and in two years hope that something yeah, like basically roll the dice exactly so i having never lived away from home an only child to overprotective greek parents 
decide to move, you know, thousands of miles away and live on my own for the first time. <laughs> and it worked out. It totally did. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd be remiss having you in the car not asking, what music moves you? What music moves me? I'm a huge fan of, uh, and I came to it uh, late, but uh, the uh, album for me, the Touchstone album, is uh, Beach Boys Pet Sounds. Interesting. Still is. And uh, I think it's a timeless record. So any band that sounds sort of like that, uh, one of the new bands that I've discovered, thanks to actually Jason Thomas turned me on to him. He gave me a copy of the CD. You heard the Lemon Twigs? I've done. 19-year-old brothers from Long Island whose parents were musicians, and they schooled them right. They <laughs> they really sound uh, like that kind of choral pop sort of sound. Like, st- um, so you still get excited when you hear music? I do. When it's, you know, I, I have to say that uh, I'm not really excited by a lot of things that are out there now, and I don't want to make the sweeping generalization that I think music was better back then than it is now because I'm sure there's a lot of things there are really, really good. I just, my time is not as open to exploring and finding new things mostly because a lot of stuff is you know available as a stream you don't get to hold the physical product which Mm -hmm. is i think a great loss for today's youth that you don't get to hold the physical album going to the record store is something they don't get to do exactly Exactly. I used that, to that was spend my, my weekend. Oh, and it's still there. Rolling Stone in oh, yeah. Norwich. I used to or I used to one go of the loudest the places in the general area. Absolutely, the greatest. And and I got and all my good bootlegs from Rolling Stone. All the little stores that were around, all the little indie stores mm-hmm. that were around that I used to go to uh, growing up on the Northwest Side. You know, and you'd go into Rolling Stone, and they'd have that five dollar bin, and occasionally they'd oh, throw yeah. a new record in there or an old record in there for five bucks, and you just grab it and. That's kind of a lost deal with um, the way things are now. So I don't get to hear a lot of new stuff. And, and I think there's also this, like, lemming hipster factor that if something is, like, you know, some website who shall mm-hmm. remain nameless <laughs> um, deems it something, you know, everybody flocks to it. or See, and this leads to a question I, I've asked myself, I've asked of others. I, I probably said it to the point where people are sick of me asking it, but... How do you discover music these days? I mean, back in the day, there were really clear-cut, trusted curators and way of, ways of discovering music. Right. The irony, everything ever created is available. Anything you want is. Right. But how do you tunnel through and find that stuff? That's, you don't get to hang out at the record store. You don't get, you know, sure, the big beat exists, and there are jocks like you and, and Marty who exist who, you know, turn people on to stuff, but... It's hard to, to... It really is. And and I think the fact that everything is available, and I think that everything is potentially DIY for a lot of musicians, and there's a lot more stuff to sift through. So mm-hmm. there, you know, and, you know, maybe somebody younger than me would be willing to do that, but I'm just not at the <laughs> point where I want to sift through YouTube and try to find, you know, the newest uh, sensation. Or I spend a lot of time it. on Bandcamp just looking, uh, listening through local bands. Mm-hmm. But I, I have to set aside time to do it. Yeah. Like, for me, that's Sunday night. When I'm working on my local music show, I'm spending a lot of time on Bandcamp. Yeah. Going through whatever has been newly released from Chicago. Yeah. Gone are the days when I could walk into Reckless and get, like, a handful of new things that I thought were interesting and have somebody behind the counter say, hey, check this yep. out. Or... Um, you know, go into wax tracks and have them tell me about some things and find some things that I've been reading And when you say about. have them, you generally mean someone who is from My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult. Or yes, <laughs> exactly. Somebody or that's Chris Connolly. Or, yeah, yeah, Chris Connolly or, you know, Frankie Fun or mm-hmm. any a number of people that were that were working at the stores. 
you know, Jim Nash himself yeah. turned me on to things. And I remember bringing things to him and showing him what was going on. Some bands that were on indie labels at one point now are on major labels. And he would give me this little ironic smile <laughs> overseeing how maybe they sold out. That's amazing. You know, but um, yeah, where do you do that now? I mean, there's still some, Reckless is still around um, and uh, there's ways to buy stuff online, I guess, but. You know, there isn't that neighborhood store you could just walk into and find a record or, you know. I, I would walk the aisles like a zombie, especially as a kid with nothing else to do. Right. Like, that would be a Saturday afternoon. Right. Right. And back then, I remember they were also kind of a combination head shop, too. Yep. <laughs> so you could get roach clips and when I, when I first moved, papers. When my parents first moved us to Skokie uh, from Chicago, I was seven years old. We lived one block down on Main Street in Skokie from a place called Merlin's Magic Music. Uh, there were K's instead of C's. Mm-hmm. You know, very apropos of the time. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was explained to me later. It was a head shop, but it's also where I bought Kiss Alive 2. Mm-hmm. And the uh, dual 7-inch of We Are the Champions and We Will Rock You. Nice. Yeah, good memories. Nice. Great memories. All right, so Johnny Mars, uh, we can hear you on XRT. On Sundays, every Sunday, 10 to 3. Should I say XRT? XRT. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, fill-in, usually Saturdays, noon to 3. I have been the regular fill-in host for uh, Wendy on Flashback, which is a lot of fun for four hours if it's the right year. Um, if it's, for years running, that's been one of the best shows on the air. It's fun. It's really fun to do. It's like you get you get to, like, pull out all kinds of arcane facts of, of the year. Um Mostly the best years are the, like, the 70s, you know, late 60s, some early 90s. But when you get into 94, 95, you're talking really stretching it to try to find something. I think Wendy's doing um, 97 for the first time. Which was a terrible year for music. Was it? It I don't remember even Terrible year for music. When you look at the listener poll and it's the Rolling Stones' Dirty Work as, like, one of the top albums, <laughs> you know that things are going to be bad, you know? <laughs> Nothing good comes from that. Yeah, or Bullets to Babylon or whatever whatever they're Bridges. Out. Bridges to Babylon, yeah. Uh, all right, Johnny, thank you for uh, sharing vegetarian food with me. Oh, thank you. This was delicious and a whole lot of fun. It was, and it's funny, as we were waiting for our food, um, I said, oh, so you're, you've been married a couple years. You said, no. Ten. ten coming up to ten, and it occurred to me the last time we ate together was right before you went married, got married, got married, and to, in my head that was just a couple of years ago, but it's been like a decade, so we should do this more often. I am all for that. So, yeah. and we live in the, we live close to each other now, so we can do it easily at Sanders. Exactly.